All right, Jason has sent me the pick from Jason. Another Jason. Too many Jasons. Here we go. Okay, I'm going to open the email. Let's see what we got here. Oh, Rush 2112. That'll be fun. <laughs> Curtis Mayfield, Superfly. Awesome. Okay, what immediately comes to mind? Um, Superfly came out in 72 because it was the year before I was born. Um, like, super cool, pre-disco, uh, soul funk. That's what I immediately think of off the top of my head. But what a very cool pick. I can't wait to dive in and start listening. Welcome to Crossfade, the dueling album review show about expanding your musical horizons. I'm your host, Matt Helgeson. Producer and co-host Jason Daphnis is here. Here he is. How are you doing, Matt? As always, glad to have you, Jason. And we're especially glad to have a special guest this week uh, to talk about two really great albums, very different albums, but I think in their own way, each uh, very amazing albums. Uh, Jason Graves, he's a video game composer. Uh, You've certainly, if you played video games, you've heard his work, uh, Dead Space franchise, Tomb Raider, Far Cry Primal, Until Dawn. Um, He's a two-time British Academy Award winning composer. He's been nominated for a lot of awards, the BAFTAs, the AIAS awards. Um, just in general, uh, uh, one of the, the bigger video game uh, composers out there. He studied at um, the University of Southern California in the film scoring program. And uh, he's also a very big Rush fan. So welcome to Jason Graves. Hey, Jason. Matt, I have to say I'm probably a little too excited to be here. So thanks for having me. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, we're excited. This is going to be a good one. Um, I wanted to talk, you, you said just off, off, um, off, uh, before we started here, you talked about being a drummer, which that would even, even make more sense that you're a Rush fan. But I did want to ask you just a little bit, uh, before we start about your, your career and kind of how you got started. Um, obviously you've, uh, you're, you're very schooled in music, but did you have sort of a background prior to that as a, as a kid, just, you know, playing in rock bands or how did you kind of get started on the path that you're on? I did. I've, I've always really loved, Music, my parents, actually, I have a picture now somewhere that my parents took of me when I was seven or something, wearing these giant olive green headphones um, from the 70s, sitting at my parents' upright piano, just playing nonsense, but liking the way it felt playing the piano. And um, I was I was just lucky to have really supportive parents. Uh, I, I took all kinds of lessons in elementary school, middle school, high school, piano lessons. I took dance lessons so that it would help with my coordination. That's actually what led me to drumming. Wow. I really enjoyed doing tap dancing, right? Like like the Fred Astaire kind of thing. That's, yeah, that's sure. just drumming, man. You're drumming with your feet. So they let me do everything. And I had like timpani lessons and vibraphone lessons and just snare drum lessons, drum set lessons, um, taught myself guitar and bass in high school and, and college played in a bunch of bands. Um, I played bass guitar in one band. I played keyboards in a blues band. Ironically, I've never played drums in a band other than like a legit pro band that did like corporate functions and, and weddings and things. But it's, I just love music and it's in my blood. That's why I really loved the excuse to basically set aside the time to go through and listen, just sit and listen to these two albums it was it was really really nice. It's ironic because I'm making music so much I don't have as much time to listen to it as I would like. 
that's not an uncommon thing I hear from people on the show is that, you know, people, I, f- I think people kind of miss maybe when they were teenagers and they had kind of more time to just talk to your friends about music and things like yeah. that. That kind of, yeah. it gets harder to do that. I think in adult life when you're busy. Um, one more thing I want to touch on is because uh, uh, you, you were in the university of Southern California's film scoring program and on your bio, it says you uh, studied under uh, Elmer Bernstein, Christopher Young, Jerry Goldsmith. Um, I, I guess you're kind of in a unique position because that must have been a like amazing and B you were sort of maybe towards the end of like just being of an age where you're even able to like learn from those type of guys, you know, like that's sort of a, a breed that I don't know if we'll ever see those, those type of guys again. And I, I guess I'm, I'm just really uh, fascinated like what that experience was like, because they just, they did so much work over, you know, literal decades and decades and, and, and just the amount of know-how and, you know, compositional and arrangement talent there. It must've been kind of, mind-blowing experience they were definitely a a rare breed those guys especially if you're mentioning like elmer bernstein jerry goldsmith buddy baker um who wrote a bunch of stuff for disney back in the day and even david raxon i took classes from david raxon who wrote music for films like in the 40s it was um it's a different breed like you said these guys like came up most of them as musicians and sort of in the studio world learning underneath either a conductor if they're playing or other composers if they're assisting. And that still happens today, but there's a lot less tangible learning going on because so much, let's face it, 99.9% of pre-production now is done in the computer with, you know, keyboards and and things like that. You don't have the big studio orchestras and like the contracted composer that is working with MGM full time and writing whatever music comes their way. Everything's a lot more haphazard sounds negative, but a lot more strewn about. Uh, Anyone can hire anybody at any time for any kind of a thing. So it gets tricky to fight through the noise and carve out your own voice. It's not like, um, like John Williams, for example, who who came up in that same studio thing as a piano player, and uh, he played Peter Gunn. So if you listen to Henry Mancini's Peter Gunn, that's John Williams on piano. That's how he learned. Wow. Where oh, wow. you know, I learned. I mean, from him and from Jerry Goldsmith and Elmer Bernstein. But it was in a classroom. Um, we did some studio stuff, and of course, they have incredible stories and wonderful advice, and they're all completely different from each other, which is amazing. Um, but yeah, it was definitely, I was there in like 96. So it was sort of like the golden age of, of those guys. Like Goldsmith was just rip roaring at his peak. Some of my favorite scores were done, um, while we were there and all those other, all the other guys too. I could, I could talk forever about them, but it was amazing. Yeah. Um, we actually had a previous guest, Austin Wintry, who did, who's done Banner Saga, Journey, oh, yeah. and Abzu. And actually we kind of got off on a tangent at the beginning he is like obsessed with Jerry with Goldsmith. Goldsmith. I almost I feel like his idol. Yeah. Yeah. He is. Hook him up with you. Cause he would just, <laughs> he talked about Goldsmith in like, just like worshipful tones. I would say. Oh, um, don't, don't worry. I've sat in Austin's studio while he prattled on about Goldsmith for like an hour, like just randomly <laughs> switching between movies on the keyboard as he played. I'm, very well versed in his fanaticism and it's very well deserved austin actually had he actually had a piano when he was doing the podcast and there was one point he's like you know and so then it was like just this little motif like and we were like wait do you have a piano he's like yeah i got a piano (laughs) so he was like illustrating his points with piano he's pretty funny um so 
let's uh, I, I, let's let's dig into the the reason we're here, uh, the album that you picked, and uh, I'm a huge fan of this band. I know that you are. Uh, it's Rush 2112, and oh. you know, I guess Rush is kind of one of those bands. It's 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 like I heard it called the world's biggest cult band, and I think that's not a bad way to describe it. You know, they were hugely successful, but also have a lot of the hallmarks of sort of a cult artist. And I think I've certainly been a part of that cult for a long time. And, and just talk about like, wh- when did you first hear Rush? Like what, what introduced you to them? And then kind of what, you know, why did they get their hooks into you? Uh, I was freshman in high school and I was going to school with a next door neighbor. He drove me, he was a senior and he had uh, hold your fire, which was the album that had come out then it was like 1990. And I remember thinking that I liked the music. And he said, oh, if you like this, you're, wait, you're, you're a drummer. He knew because, well, he was my next door neighbor. So he could hear me playing drums all the time. He was like, dude, you need to listen to some early Rush. And I don't remember if he pointed out a specific album or not. But I do remember that summer being on vacation, like going up north with my folks. We're, we're in North Carolina. I think we were going like up to Maine or something. And we were driving in an RV. And I had... A couple of Rush albums. I don't remember specifically which ones, but it's on cassette. It's not like you're getting, you know, oh, track three. That's what this is called. It was just sort of blanking out and listening to the music. And as a drummer, it was just uh, my mouth was open half the time. And then I'd start listening to the bass part and then the guitars because I can very poorly play bass and guitar. And it was just from a technical (laughs) standpoint, like amazing. Right. But then just from a musician standpoint, um, enjoying the music, the way it was written, the lyrics. And then I found out that uh, Neil Peart is the lyricist as well. It was just like, oh my gosh, what can these guys not do? And it just went on from there. I got the method books for guitar, bass, and drums and played, learned to play as much of it as I could. I could do the drums like note for note because that's my main instrument. Bass, no, it's way too hard. But I could do some guitar stuff. I could do like, you know, um, Fly By Night and stuff like that. That's a little more straightforward on the guitar. It's just, yeah, they're such cool guys and their music is so unique. Yeah, I'm actually, so that's Hold Your Fire. Actually, I, that, that was probably around the same time I discovered them as well. I remember <laughs> I didn't get like books, but I used to get guitar magazines that had like tablature in them. Oh, yeah. And I spent yeah. a lot of time on the bass part to the song uh, Force 10. Oh, yeah. It was this kind of like ding chordal kind of thing he's doing and i didn't know that was bass for the longest time until i saw him play it live and i was like wait getty's playing that so cool yeah 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 no i i spent a lot of time learning that that intro and then i had a little band you know like a little junior high band but you know the the good thing with rush that they threw a bone to like all like little kid bands is like working man because it was like (laughs) it's a catchy tune but like you can totally play working man you know what i mean even if you're only like you know of the level to play like the Iron Man riff or something like that. Right, so right. that was, that was our, that was our rush jam. We couldn't handle anything more than that. Um, but yeah, yeah, totally. I'm, I'm more like, I'm definitely a 2112 fan. Uh, but I like the ones I really gravitated to, I think had come out a little bit before that I, I heard of them, but like stuff like signals and, uh, moving pictures and like that kind of era. Um, but yeah, they just have so many eras. That's the thing about rush. And this, I think is kind of like the album, 2112 that really i think made them i think is a band to a certain degree um if anyone isn't familiar with rush there's a great documentary called uh, beyond the lighted stage it's on netflix um it's just a super fun documentary and i think it gives you a really good um you know just history of the band and also just a you know all you know you're gonna see some extremely famous you know 
people in, in music that were super influenced by them. So um, is, is 2112, I mean, I take it this is like your favorite Rush. This is like your, your one. You know, actually, I, I think probably Hemispheres or Signals are, is probably, if I had to pick one album that was my favorite, um, probably Hemispheres, uh, just because I love that first side, which is actually very programmatic, like the first side of 2112. But um, I picked 2112 because I like I like what it stands for. And I like where it sits in the pantheon of Rush music. Um, it's like their first album where they really came into their own. And I love the story behind that, which I can share whenever whenever you want. Um, Go for to, it. To, to, okay. Well, I... So it's their fourth. It's their fourth record, and Cress of Steel they had done before this, and it did not sell very well. And the tour was kind of depressing from the the reports that I've read. And they were working on some tracks as they were touring, like most bands do. And they were kind of ready to go to the studio. And the record label was basically like, "Guys, we need something." It's like from uh, from that thing you do. It's Tom Hanks, like. We need something snappy. We need a hit. We need, you know, like something to play on the radio. We don't need all this esoteric, crazy stuff that you did on Caress of Steel. We need you to be commercial. And if it doesn't work, we're dropping you. They, they literally had an ultimatum. And it was that ultimatum that, that fueled the fire for the first side of 2112, which is that whole kind of multi-song, 23-minute, however long it is, epic, like rock anthem they only did that because they were pushing back so hard against the record label telling them they needed to conform and neil peart wrote the lyrics and it's all about like basically rising up against the man uh who's trying to crush your creativity and individual individualism 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 yeah trying to crush your creativity and individualism and in making the song to rebel against the record label, they actually found an audience. People were like, fuck yeah, they totally got it. Like they were, they felt like the songs were written for them, even though it was like very, very personal um, for the band. And I just, I, I love that. There's some moments we can go through from, from lyrics and things that uh, I think are really, really interesting. But um, the other thing that really struck me was they wanted it to be, a three-piece album. They wanted it to be something they could do live. So I love how big and in-your-face and punchy it can get, but also how stripped down it is. When Alex goes to a guitar solo, all you hear are bass and drums. But they're playing so freaking fast that it's like, it sounds like mm -hmm. 10 players in the background, right? It's just, um, it's, it's a monument kind of in their in their like history of tunes. It's like, I would say there's, there's 2112 and there's moving pictures as far as like really kind of cementing who they were. And then everything yeah. else sort of falls between. Do you think? Yeah, I would say that these, it's sort of like this, I kind of consider this part of the the first part of the band's uh, history, but also sort of closes that chapter. And then I think you go into the new chapter and like hemispheres would really be the, <clears throat> I think the apex of like their, prog like chops kind of ambition yep. and then yep. you know probably why I like <clears throat> moving so pictures much. obviously takes them into <laughs> yeah i mean it, well god it's like it's it's relentless and then um you know moving pictures i think they, they'd started to listen to things like the police and talking yep. heads and some of those newer mm -hmm. bands and kind of switched in the 80s where they embrace like synthesizers and i think they Sense. make yeah. they're making an attempt to make more pop songs that are like four minutes long um but let's get into this i think it's it's kind of i love i love this first the first song and 
for everyone, just informationally, this like it's it's on Spotify and streaming like it is on the original album, where the first track is just one track, the first side of the album. Uh, it's it's overture, temples of Syrinx, discovery, presentation, oracle, the dream, soliloquy, and grand finale. Um, but overture is awesome. This is like if you've seen Rush live, this is like a super fan favorite, and I think it just I like the fact that they kind of present it almost like a you know overture is kind of a classical music term. Like this is a a sweet kind of thing, and it's just it really rocks too. I mean, it's just this is a great one. So let's 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 hear your overture. Little knob twisting here is always good. They had a, a different guy come in to do the synth stuff. Oh, I didn't know that. I don't, wow. I don't remember his name. I don't know how they count this. So there's the dotted, dotted eighth delay. The muted crash symbols. This is basically like Iron Maiden's like whole career right here. Yeah. This riff. That kind of gallop, like they totally love this song. And this is the overture, right? So this is Temple of Syrinx. It's just the preview. Yeah, I think this is a Temple of Syrinx doesn't officially begin till four thirty-three, right. at least from what I found. That was it. It was just a snippet because they're literally doing an overture where they're playing like little bits of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I'm not air drumming, you are. (laughs) How far did you get learning this album on bass, Matt? Nowhere. (laughs) I'm not one, I don't learn stuff. I just like... You just discover stuff. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I wasn't, I didn't have the patience, I don't think. Their use of space is so great. There's like that little hiccup, that little hesitation between the riffs. And yeah, let's do a guitar solo before there's even a song. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) This is actually really, I I hadn't really listened to this for a while and, um, this a couple of, I was going to later on when we get to passage to Bangkok, but I feel like, uh, Lifeson is kind of sort of a really underrated seventies rock guitarist. Like 
he sort of lives in the shadow of his rhythm section, which is really odd for a lead guitar yeah. player, but he's so melodic. Hey! Hey! Everyone yeah, screams they, they do it live. It's live. Like, like, you should, like, what's that one, Rock in Rio in, like, Brazil? Yeah. It, this is, like, a total, total, like, soccer chant. It's just, like, 100,000 people going, hey! Yeah. They got all the lights flashing at the same time. Very cool. What is that thing? I <laughs> This is driving me nuts all week. Is that something? Is that like a quote? Uh, I think it's Tchaikovsky, because these are like cannons right here. Oh, okay. Yeah. And also that, the boom, digga digga dong, digga digga dong, digga digga dong, is kind of the same thing as the very end where they do attention all planets of the Solar Federation. So they literally like wrapped up the overture with the very end of the whole thing. Sorry, I didn't realize we were going straight into Temples of Syrinx. I wouldn't have talked over it. Yeah, I, I, oh, I didn't yeah, bother we, to we, ask, we better, we should, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what we're going to do here. We're just going to keep rolling. Um, we should probably pause at some point. But uh, Yeah, I'll, I'll give a pause so we can chat about what just, we just heard. This is tough. It's even challenging to podcast, Rush. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do with my timestamps. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, um, but anyway, so that takes us in, and now Temples of Syrinx is the priest. Uh, I hadn't actually read the Wikipedia. I didn't know a lot of this stuff. It's the city of Megadon in 2112, where individualism and creativity are outlawed by the malevolent malevolent priests who reside in the Temples of Syrinx. So um, I guess, yeah, basically it's, it's kind of a, a classic sort of like, you know, future society where like, you know, everyone has to be sort of this nameless, faceless kind of cipher. and yeah. uh you know, there's no music. Music is outlawed. Probably sort of like a revolutionary kind of thing, or you know, uh, I mean, you know, it, we're, it's, you're, it's very much pulp sci-fi, uh, which I think Pert was like a huge, huge fan of a lot of sci-fi and stuff like that. And it's, uh, um, I don't know, I like it. It, it gives it gives the record like this sort of weird energy about it that otherwise would just be sort of like '70s rock songs, or not typical, but you know, like I like it. Um, so talk about like uh, temples. Is this? Is this one, I mean, this seems like it's a fan favorite overall, especially live. Yeah, and bless Getty's heart, he's singing so freaking high. It's like, you get that overture, right? And then the do 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 and he goes, it's like so high. <laughs> it's There's your classic Rush fan or not Rush fan divide. Usually it's Getty's vocals. The, the people that I talk to, they're like, I can't listen to Rush. I, I, don't, like the, I don't like that guy's voice. Really? I think it's great because it's so unique. Um, so what what really strikes me about this album and all the stuff that they do is how they have space for things, not just open space where no one's playing, but they'll be like, um, so I have my first mark is at 439, which I think is right around where we just were because everyone's like, and the band will stop, meaning the guitar and the bass. And they just hold a note. And then Neil does this like crazy drum fill. And then another time they'll do a break and Alex is going do, 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 do. Like everyone has their space. Everyone has their time to shine. And it never sounds or feels like too much is happening unless they want it to. Like at the very end of 2112 when it's supposed to be cacophony. But it's the kind of thing that if you're trying to come up with a cool prog rock song, 
like everyone wants to play lots of stuff all the time, especially if you have really good musicians. And having that kind of maturity to hold back and like let this person do something and then let that person do something. And now we're going to do the guitar solo, but it's just bass and drums behind it. I think that's one of the things that makes all their songs just really, really well structured and and put together. It was um, 439. Mm. I said, amazing space for drum fills. And then at 502, um, there's a beat that he plays that comes in over the chorus, which is right where we stopped. And Neil's doing this ding, 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 ding. I think that's the first time he ever plays that beat. And that's on like Livia Strangiato, Red Barchetta, and probably three or four other songs. He That's like his signature beat. If you sat behind a drum set in a music store and played that, everyone would point to you. They'd be like, you're playing Rush. <laughs> that's like his When the Levee Breaks beat, basically. And I think this is the first time you hear it. I love that. Yeah, that's a classic. Oh, come though. on. <laughs> Another break. Break. And it's been drums every time, right? Now we do guitar. And I love how the guitars are so open. You hear bass and drums. See, that's another it's great example, so like right? Conga line, like like dancing. <laughs> yeah, it's like <laughs> oh, this fill right here. God, I love that fill. See, and Matt, I think this is one of the reasons Alex gets underrated. Listen to the guitar. Dude, yeah, dude, dude, dude. He's like giving it all the space. The drums. Yeah, I mean they're they're an interesting band in that they're kind of. I mean they are a prog rock band, I think, but they're sort of fundamentally different to me than like groups like Yes or King Crimson or bands. I mean because they're really not like uh, we. Uh, you know, they, they, they don't really solo a lot. It's not like they do these extended solos. They yeah, don't really improvise. Yeah. Like, if you see them live, like, they play things exactly like the record. So they're almost sort of just taking this, like, really, really technically adept and complex versions of what really still are kind of tight, you know, for the most part, like, rock songs. You know, even though they stitch several of them together into, like, a sidelong suite, it's a lot different to me than, like, Yes, who would do sort of, like, you know, these 15 minute sort of explorations with like an organ, you know, solos and stuff that would go on and on, you know, like Rush is fundamentally like still maintains that like sort of heart is sort of this like post cream, post Led Zeppelin, like hard rock Canadian band, even when they got more and more ambitious. Yeah, they're they're lean and mean. And I was always blown away how exact their live performances were. 
I mean, they're like down to the note. And if anyone's going to have a problem recreating that, it's the drummer because he's playing new stuff all the time. It's not like he goes to the chorus and he's got the same bass line as he did on the last chorus. He's always playing different stuff and he's note for note perfect every every show I've seen. And and everybody else would know because like half the audience is air drumming and they know how the fills go. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I, he was just an unbelievable like machine, you know, really. Um, where, where else should we go? I mean, I, I feel like this is kind of like the whole plot line thing. So yeah, we, probably we just let off at uh, 645 discovery. It was about to start. Yeah, Let's, we, let's uh, start discovery. Is, I kind of like this. This has some kind of clever little like, you know, storyline slash musical yeah, things yeah. which i think is kind of fun my next timestamp. so there you go and what i love this is literally alex picking up a guitar in the studio like in one take and tuning it it was out of tune he tunes it and then he starts playing the tune because the idea is he's discovered this guitar in a cave right you get the water and everything i mean how far removed can you get from like temples and computers and heavy metal to like this yeah, I mean, I just, this is so clever just because obviously in the plot, this is a guy that discovers this one guitar that hasn't been hidden by the, you know, the priests or whatever, and he's sort of like discovering music. I love the implication, though, that somebody could like, after years and years of musical instruments, stringed instruments not existing, somebody can just pick <laughs> one up and just have this like at the ready. It makes me so mad because he's like, what is this beautiful thing that I've found? And he's shredding away. Yeah. Jason, I literally had in my notes the fastest lear- the fastest learner in the history of guitar. Yeah. Like in, in 45 seconds, he's mastered. Yep. As quickly as he tunes it, he's just as good as Alex Lifeson. <laughs> I mean, I used to play this tune on guitar like all the time because this is the kind of simple thing that I could do. Hmm. And the the funny thing is, um, Matt and Jason, is it's like back in the day, I know it sounds like we're 90, but you couldn't just jump on the internet and watch a YouTube video or look at some transcription. Most of the stuff I had to do by ear. Yeah. I remember when I heard this the first time, I was like, is he talking about the guitar? Like he just found the guitar? (laughs) <laughs> He's talking about a harp. What's going on? And then this is too meta. Yeah, it's like. Yeah, I love his added tones, the added notes he adds in chords, all the suspensions mm-hmm. and add six and things. That's just so melodic. Maybe that's a good spot to move forward because we're going to end up playing the whole freaking. Yeah. The song's like twenty yeah, minutes no long. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I actually have a mark at ten twenty three. Is kind of where the next the next section kicks off, and I think it's when so basically this guy goes in front of the priest and he's like, "Here, check out what I have." And the music's very quiet and like kind of you know um, solemn and and 
not over exaggerated. And then you get the priest's response, which I think is this at, at 1023. All I have on my notes is, yes, this is why we are here. I think it's like a huge drum fill. <laughs> All right, here we go. Well, that was a drum fill. Wow. You were not kidding. I like this. It's, so it's loud. Now it gets quiet. I know it's most unusual. Right. So here he's basically presenting the guitar to the exactly. priest. Like, but I found Don't worry, Neil can't play anything simple, even though he's playing quiet. He's got all these little... <laughs> Listen to my music what it's And even, I remember reading in an interview, Getty said he felt really silly f- singing quiet. And then screaming. It's like, that. you can't do that in one song. Man, listen to it when it gets loud. It's so great. Yes, we know. think this is where we go into nope yeah the next song is listed as five oracle 1356 yeah should we go forward to the next one yeah i i love i'm happy to jump um so it goes through another set of verse and chorus, right? But then it goes to a guitar solo, and it's actually the Temple of Syrinx from like three songs earlier, the guitar solo from that song, because it's like the priests are basically, you know, like sticking it mm-hmm. and showing off. I, I just, I love, I don't have that marked as a timestamp or anything, but I just always thought that was really clever. Um, I do have to admit, I am incredibly literal on my time mark. So if I say 1451, that's literally where these symbol chokes are I'm talking about. Oh, sure, so sure, sure. Maybe we should back up to like <laughs> yeah, 1445. Yeah. And before before you play it, Jason, um, there's something about the way that Neil Peart does his symbol work. It's I'd never heard anything like it before. He'll 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 hit the crash, like this big splashy thing, but then he'll choke it. So it kind of goes. And then he'll crash it again yeah. so it's open. It's like this. Tss, 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 tss. And he does the same thing with his hi-hats. And um, this, is a, this is a great example, 1451. And then at 1512, he does these little fills. It's like little, little pops of color that just kind of stick out amongst all the other furious drumming that he's playing. I, I love it. All right. I'll give it a little bit of lead time. 1445. Cool, we are now cool. thoroughly in which part? It's five oracles. Come on. I mean, (laughs) 
I think the cool thing to notice here is everyone else is just like they're just playing notes. They're just going dump, 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 mm-hmm. dump, 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 and the drummer is the one that's like orchestrating it and giving it all this color and variety. Like when he hits the snare drum versus the kick drum versus choking a cymbal versus letting it ring out, it really is. It's like the the texture of that whole entire passage because the guitars are just playing single notes because they were out of the way. They knew Neil was going to do something awesome. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. There's so much of that space leaving, like you said, Jason. Um, I'm assuming that's pretty important in like orchestral and, uh, and symphonic arrangement too, right? Is that something that you would have picked up over the years from music like this? Oh yeah, definitely. It's the, it's the complete conundrum where the space is actually making things sound bigger where normally you would think you need to pile things on. Like the more that's playing and the more space you're occupying and the thicker sound wave you're producing, the bigger something's going to sound. And it's actually the opposite. It makes it sound small by comparison. And that space is what's Hmm. giving you that contrast and letting you hear kind of the size of the instruments and like the, you know, the distance between the bass and the guitar and the drums. If it was a wall of sound, it would just um, shrink you know, in our minds. Yeah. Yeah. That's why all of my garage band recordings sound like uh, dog shit and <laughs> everything else that I listen to sounds, eh, you know, yeah. pretty, pretty good and professional. Sorry. I just had a quote. If you guys are familiar with Ingve Malmsteen, the, uh, he's I'm like, not. he's like a super shredder, like Norwegian metal guitarist. And he was famous for being one of the first, like super ultra speed kind of guys in the eighties. There's this great clip of him. And he's like, he's in this, uh, interview and he's like, you know, when I was playing, people would always say less is more. And I say, but how can that be true? More is more. How can less be more? And it's like, <laughs> it's like this is whole philosophy. Um, but anyway, let's go ahead. Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm trying not to. Okay. 1947. That's the last one I have for 2112. Um, and I think this is at the very end. And this is, this is like a good, a good example of less is more. It's just these long chords in the bass and the guitar. I almost wish we could take the drums and strip them out because they'd just be playing chords and they're kind of sitting around and playing chords. And the part that Neil came up with for this very simple thing, knowing that it's like at the end and everything's building and it's the climax, it's it's just, it's amazing. They gave him all the space and he completely like did a masterclass in, in drum set with it. It was uh, 1947, probably 1940 would be a good place to start. There we are. It was like super heavy for them. And well, what's amazing is he never plays the same thing twice. It's like eight drum fills all stacked in a row. He never plays on the same beat. He never plays the same instrument. It's it's like a drum solo, but it's orchestrated perfectly. I I love it. So Matt, I kind of feel like I end. totally took over and dictated all of those spots. Is there is there anything that you wanted to add? I got no, a little excited. No. <laughs> no, no, I think it was it was great. I mean, you know, I think you kind of got to do that whole piece in in sequence. I mean, you can't really skip around, right? And it's it's no, hard. I mean, yeah. I think we hit the big the hit the big things and then this it's an all this but now we're getting to the second side, which is an all interesting part of this is like a concept album but like only one side, right? So mm-hmm. The second part now 
we kind of move into like just I think I don't know if this was you know their envision or a compromise or whatever, but it, it certainly like is it is has some more accessible stuff. Um, the first song here is I think another fan favorite, and you know after all the kind of you know like philosophical sci-fi, we're we're back to one of the staples of seventies rock, which is like smoking pot is really cool. Oh yeah, and that's <laughs> that's literally like. You know, there's references to Acapulco Gold and Jamaica and, you know, tie stick and everything. So, uh, but this is a fun one. It's got, you know, it definitely verges on corny, I think, in places, but it's got some great riffs. And actually, um, the guitar solo on this one is one of my favorite lifes and guitar solos. So this is Passage to Bangkok, which is basically just Rush, just traveling around the world, trying to find the best, the best weed that uh, humanity has to offer. Oh, I love this riff, though, man. I've always loved how the lead guitar plays like the harmony to the original line there. I know. Mm -hmm. I was going to say that. Is it a sharp seven that it's like landing on that? Oh, man, it's so tight. Yeah. Neil would always do these cool things where the time signature would shift by an eighth note. But he'd be doing that offbeat hi-hat. Oh, is that what it's doing? He wouldn't shift the hi-hat. Yeah, I love that they give... uh, Lyson doesn't get a chance to kind of do the real traditional, like, 70s kind of guitar hero stuff that often. And, like, I think... I mean, he's really good at it. He could have done this all the time. He just kind of chose not to. (laughs) That makes me laugh every time. Yeah, I was listening to some live versions. I guess he used to do that with like like claves or something. I don't know, like some kind of woodblock thing, I guess. Woodblocks, yeah, he's got woodblocks. Yeah, man, I had the woodblocks or cowbells. I'm sorry, I think he used cowbells for that. 
I had the woodblocks and the cowbells in high school. Okay. You had to. Yeah. Um, another one I wanted to cover uh, is Twilight Zone, which is the next song. Yeah. And, um, I mean, this this one's kind of a long one. I don't know how much we have to cover, but there's a few things on here that struck me as, as kind of interesting and very... Um, I don't know. This one has sort of a modern feel to it that I think is interesting, especially the, the verse. I just love this part so much. Real high note. Jeez. I love this here. But this part, uh, this verse part is, seems very, it doesn't feel that seventies to me. Like this almost reminds me of like bands like tool or, you know, kind of post nineties kind of metal bands. Yeah. They were a time um, signature thing going on. You guys. Yep. That little kind of turnaround riff. That's kind of, Tricky. I only know stuff's tricky. I don't know if, what time signatures is in. I like how they go from straight tick 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 to the swing. Right, it's like the verse is the yeah the Twilight Zone episode at the beginning, where you don't really know what's going on, and then it goes to the chorus, and it's like kind of explaining what's happening. Apparently, they just love the Twilight Zone. That's why they wrote a song about it. <laughs> just like we like the show. Yeah, they love the show. Like they were huge fans, like the old Rod Serling classic Twilight Zone episodes. <laughs> there's that whole there's a Gene Simmons clip that maybe in the movie where like they were actually kind of friends with Kiss. Oddly, it seems oddly, but they had a sort of mutual respect and they opened for Kiss a lot. And Gene Simmons would talk about, you know, Kiss just going on these like crazy, like groupy fueled adventures. And then he'd be like, I couldn't understand. They would just sit around in their room and like just read books or like watch a hockey game and like drink beer by themselves. And I was like, <laughs> what, what are you guys doing? Go, go out there. And they just, but they didn't want to. They just wanted to watch television. Yeah. They're just nerds like all normal people, which is probably why so many, uh, so many people identify with them. Yeah, I mean, and Gene Good wasn't point. like ripping on him. He was just more oh, perplexed. Yeah, of yeah. Like, why wouldn't you? You know, what to, he he loves him. He spoke very highly of them as people and as a band. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen uh, the I mean, video. There's I, a thing on YouTube. Um, I think it's called like "Dinner with Rush at a Hunting Lodge." It's amazing. They're they're literally having dinner in this hunting lodge. It's like 20 minutes long, and they're just talking about stuff. There's obviously multiple cameras there, and they're mic'd up and everything, but it's just like they don't talk about music. They're just talking about everything else, and it's amazing. I strongly recommend doing a search for it. Yeah, no, I haven't seen that. Let's, I'll definitely check that out. Um, I kind of feel like it hit a lot of my highlights. Is there any other are there remaining songs um, that you wanted to hit? Um, I have I have one other thing, but it's really more of a, a drum fill that that he does that probably everyone Please. will just kind of shrug at. It's so the song lessons. 
um, I've always really liked. And he always, there's this one drum fill. It's right around, let's start at one minute, 50 seconds. Um, he does this thing where it's just like, ding, 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 like super happy. And then Neil says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to play an offbeat 16th note fill on my hi-hat for like six, six beats, just out of the middle of, of nowhere. And he totally nails it and it's it's so simple but completely displaced that most people don't even like it it blows by before they even recognize what's happening but if you try to play it as a drummer that's that's like both of your hands and both of your feet playing perfect offbeat 16th notes which is not easy and of course he makes it look effortless okay i'll play about 10 seconds of it you can tell me what's going on there okay cool I love the way Getty's bass sounds in this, too. Here we go. Yeah, this is a great... Oh, my gosh! <laughs> that was it. Okay, that's that's just a moment, then. Yeah. Like, it's throwaway yeah. for most people? Just like, you know... Yeah. And it, I, I practiced it, like... Like to keep on the beat like that. I, I don't know if if you guys know. Um, I do because yeah. I'm a drummer and I loved Rush. Um, so what Neil would do, Alex and Getty would write the music in the studio or uh, wherever, and send the tracks to Neil, and then he would put together the drum part on his own, and he'd show up in the studio and just play the song down, top to bottom exactly the way you hear it on the record which does that really surprise you no it doesn't surprise me (laughs) he was such a technician there's some songs i I can't remember off the top of my head but some of them um are one are first takes with no edits uh other ones obviously they had to do a punch in here or there or he'd do three or four takes until he kind of got the feel the way he wanted but i mean the dude showed up ready for business and was just like (laughs) just mash the button and let me play that's crazy (laughs) Um, Jason, actually, go back to just that around that spot we were just listening to because I, I did want to kind of talk about Getty a little bit, and um, it occurred to me this is a good spot to do so. <clears throat> but you know, he's the thing I would say about Getty is he he is kind of a busy player in some ways, but he's the things I got out of him, and I don't really play this kind of music myself. Is like he has such a strong melodic sense, and I never feel like, despite the fact that. It's busier. I don't feel like he loses kind of the pocket of what's going on. And I feel like he's just sort of... He's trying to do interesting things melodically and phrasing-wise, but to me it doesn't feel like he's being overly technical just for that sake, right? And like I think that what he has that some other people might not that came up after him is... I don't know, just such a strong sense of melody and like just how to operate within the chord changes. Yeah, he was. Um, he's he's a monster. Um, and I think it, I think Getty probably. Now I am completely speculating, but it seems like that his bass parts kind of define the the playing that Alex ended up doing m- more so than than Neil. Like the drums are up front and forward, and they can be busy, um, but the bass and the guitar cannot both be busy at the same time. And like you said, Getty, man, he can shred like a big a big a big a big a I mean, mm-hmm. even just in happy kind of uh, grooves like that, that song with major keys and everything, he's still just all over the place in a good way and in a very tight pocket way. But if Alex were trying to play guitar that busy, 
then you'd get into the whole conundrum of there's too much happening and now everything sounds very, very small and confusing. Mm. So that kind of leaves him yeah. to, you know, do chords and maybe double the baseline um, on certain things. But he, he's like the, Alex is like the hero of the group. He took one for the team. I mean, you know, he could stand toe to toe and do really complicated, crazy, like Joe Satriani, like insane solos um, and rhythm parts and everything. But he's, he's like letting everybody else ride the wave. And then he gets a solo every now and then. But um, I think that's, that's, they're all very giving players and people from what I understand. Like yeah. they're, they're very generous musicians. And that's something you normally find like in jazz um, or maybe like fusion. Know, with the the rock thing is usually like you know um it's like spinal tap right like two two lead guitarists or whatever you know everyone wants the spotlight everyone's hogging attention rush is the opposite they're like no you play no you play <laughs> and they're all the better for it yeah and i mean another thing with life's too is they as they move forward into like the post moving pictures era like he he actually even kind of strips back his playing even more so yeah. and it's yeah. much more atmospheric and and he's one of the only guitar players I can think of that was around for, you know, like the entire kind of rock era that, you know, he's a very different player by like the mid 80s to late 80s than he was in the in the late 70s or mid 70s. He's he's like almost completely changed up his tone and his style and and everything. And it, it was pretty impressive because, you know, Getty and, and Neil definitely change over time, but I think they're playing kind of they're just advancing what the styles that they were playing. Whereas yep. like Lifeson kind of goes through this period where he almost like completely reinvents himself as a guitar player. That's actually kind of maybe one of the more impressive things about the band. Yeah, I agree. I love how he's such a, his use of open strings on like certain chords that he does. And then also a lot of times he's never playing like a straight triad. There's always a sus four or an add six or an add nine in there. And it's like this flavor of of harmony that uh totally works because then you've got like 16th notes from the bass uh going on underneath it and he's really anchoring like the tonality and the texture of the songs especially like you said moving into the the 90s and then forward like lots of cool reverb and delay and atmosphere i mean he's the one that's sort of it's like he's being a keyboard almost right <laughs> yeah definitely um well, I feel like we, we've covered this. It was awesome. Uh, it was really fun to listen to 2112. It had been a while. Um, and yeah, it's just, what can you say? It's Rush. If you, you know, like I highly recommend people, if you, if you're really not familiar, I, just to reiterate, I think the, the documentary might really make you inclined to want to check them out. And then yeah. I'd say, you know, this or, you know, an album like I think Moving Pictures, if I had to suggest one album, maybe to, suggest to somebody as, as a non-Rush fan to listen to it, it might be that because I think it kind of balances some of the progressive rock elements with like accessibility and, and kind of a new wave influence as well. So, but you know, they're one of my faves and, and, you know, rest in peace to Neil Peart. It was, uh, it was sad to lose him and it was really, um, I don't think people appreciated like maybe what he was putting himself through in those final tours when he was suffering from cancer already. And, uh, you know, to, to continue to play at that level that he did for, for all those years was really, I think, a, an amazing accomplishment. And, you know, it, we, we were talking, we both saw the last tour and, um, you know, he still played it, man. I mean, it was, it was the one time I felt like I could, I could see him really having to work for it maybe a little bit, but yeah. he was still yeah. just amazing up to the end. So, um, it was, uh, yeah, a great band, a great band. And, you yeah. know, they're, they're now done, but, um, obviously 
I think that the music holds up well. Um, so let's switch gears to my pick. Uh, you know, it's different, but I think also a very um, ambitious record and uh, a great talent as well. Um, this is Curtis Mayfield, the Superfly soundtrack, oh, yeah. soundtrack to the sort of the the, the Ron O'Neill black exploitation film. And uh, just to kind of give a little background with me in this record, I um, you know, I, I think I was vaguely aware of Curtis Mayfield just in the same way that. I knew him as a, a big soul R&B name, you know, like Sam Cooke or Otis Redding or Marvin Gaye or Aretha, people like that. Um, and I kind of bought this album on a, a whim one time because, I mean, I, I knew the uh, the title track just from kind of pop culture and stuff. Um, I knew Freddie's Dead because a band called Fishbone um, covered it back in the day, and I was a fan of them. They were sort of maybe like – they might have – they were an all-African-American band that probably should have had the Red Hot Chili Peppers career. Um, but didn't, um, they covered this and, uh, I got this and I sort of, when I, I dug into it, I, I kind of started to really realize that he was maybe not as known as people like Marvin Gaye or, or Stevie Wonder, but, um, just everything he was bringing to the table musically as a guitar player, a songwriter, a singer, a ranger. Um, I don't know. I just started to listen to all the details in this, in this music. And it's, it's one of these things where it's like, it's instantly very accessible and, and catchy, but um, one of the reasons I think, Jason, I want to pick it for you, because I just know you're very, in, in, you know, you know the studio environment very well, and arrangements very well, and playing with ensembles, and things like that, and the more I got into this record, I was just like, I mean, it's it's, it's cool on the surface, and it's, it's catchy on the surface, but when I was really listening closely to it, I was like, my god, like, there's just so much detail, and so much being done here, and it really kind of I don't know. I, I got very into it for a period of time, and I'm just so I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like you know, uh, how familiar with it you were, and just you know, from your perspective musically and, and your background, like how you kind of reacted to this. Well, I loved the choice, just because I I picture the album cover in my head as soon as I think of Curtis Mayfield, I automatically associate that with Superfly, and I see the the soundtrack album, but I couldn't remember honestly what any of it sounded like because I listened to it in. Um, in college, basically in like the, the music library. Uh, Cause you know, back when we were kids, you couldn't just look something up on Spotify. You had to buy the album and there was no way to preview it. So it was uh, the music library was a big boon for me. I would spend probably way too much time, like nights and weekends all by myself, listening to stuff with headphones on. Um, but what I love about this particular like time those the early all of the seventies, but especially the early seventies, is your your pre disco right? I'm not a huge disco fan. It's fine, but I've played way too many disco charts on drums, and I get like shin splints from going boom stats boom stats for twenty minutes, like with the disco <laughs> beat. It gets a little old. <laughs> but this is kind of before disco came out, um, and just for a little bit of what I love about this from a historical aspect is you've got this kind of west coast like the eagles or or steely dan like super dry sound like what you're referring to matt with all the detail right it's because they had um i mean i think it's even like 65 or 66 the beatles were still doing like four tracks of audio and for for non-musicians if if you have four tracks that means you have four like um you know four hoses that you can pipe your audio down there's only four microphones you can really record at once. So that's why a lot of those things from the 50s and the 60s sound like they're in this big room because they literally are. They're in a big room. And if you want your vocalist to be heard, they get closer to these microphones. And then if the band needs to be quieter, they 
put the microphones further away from them, but everyone's still in this real big room. When you get into the late 60s, it's like eight track and then technology started really picking up. And I think by 70, like 73 or 74, um, like 24 tracks was becoming fairly uh, normal. I think they had 16 by like 71. So more tracks means more microphones, which means you can get closer to all of these instruments and still record everybody individually. So that's why you've got like cool panning in the drums and like the strings are really up front and dry. They've got control over all the signals. They can say, I'm just going to put the the hi-hat in the left channel and I'm going to put these backup vocals in the right channel. And we still have, wow, we still got, you know, if it was 16 tracks, we still have 14 more kind of things that we can decide to do. So you get like some of my favorite bass guitar tones in the world. And I've got a note like on Freddie's Dead, oh, like that. 70s it's probably like a p bass like a fender oh my gosh i love that sound yeah. the drums all have towels on them they're all muted so it's like a very like dot 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 very dry upfront sound I, i'm i'm a huge fan so i was just nodding my head and smiling yeah. the whole time i was listening to this album because it, it sounded like even better than i hoped it would yeah well let's hear the first i mean this is the iconic the the title track Superfly, and like you know if you talk about just cool songs that like just establish a vibe right away. Like this is this oh, is yeah. right up there, and you know. Speaking of bass tones, mm-hmm. is that a weiro? That it's like a talking drum, like one whatever. of those things that you <laughs> squeeze under your arm. Oh. Mm. James Brown in the house. I like Curtis's voice too, and he's kind of an interesting contrast to me to to like, you know, people like, you know, like Otis Redding or you know, Mar- he's closer to Marvin probably, or but you know, but he has a very kind of light, yeah, and kind of whispery kind of thing going on as opposed to like a real powerhouse. Yep, but it, it just I don't know it works so well with what he does. And James Brown, right? It's like the opposite. He's not screaming with like ah ah. He's almost like talking quieter than he would even need to. Yeah, and there's something almost talky about it, kind of like... Actually, almost... In a weird way, it reminds me of Lou Reed a little bit, almost yeah, like yeah, yeah. he has this kind of conversational thing. The other thing I appreciate about this track and a couple other ones, too, is there's there's some Wawa in there, right? Like Shaft really... I think it came out a couple years before this. And that featured the like waka ticket waka ticket like wah wah guitar up front and mm-hmm. center kind of classic seventies. And see, it, there's some wah wah in here, but it's in the background like as a texture, and it's it's almost like he didn't want to like kind of ape that same sound. Um, he's got a different mm-hmm, thing yeah. going on. He's got like the James Brown soul brass, but he's got the seventies wah wah guitar and his sort of whispery vocals. And I love the strings in here too. It's just it's just super unique. Super flat. <laughs> yeah, un- un- unlike a lot of those guys, you know, he was also very much a guitar player as well, you know, which is, I mean, Stevie's obviously a-, a keyboardist, but, you know, 
Like somebody like Marvin Gaye is definitely more known. I'm sure he could play guitar and keyboards, but he was more known as a, you know, a front person or yeah. James Brown, you know? All right. Well, we can't just listen to the whole song, so we got we to gotta move. Uh, <laughs> the one that I, next one I wanted to hear, which I think is just an amazing song, is uh, the first song is Little Child Running Wild. Yep. Um, this one just had like the, another, the, the arrangements on here are just overall, the way he can structure a whole band and, and, and the percussion and the horns and the uh, strings and everything. It's just, it's truly, um, he was just a real talent, you know? I just love this. Oh man, that organ sound. It's like one of the great percussion albums of all time. <laughs> yeah. There's your space. But you know it's it's interesting, Jason. Yeah, that you mentioned disco because I bet this was like super influential on disco. You can start to hear some of like, oh, yeah. the, the way the strings are done in some of those things. But he did, it's not quite that disco formula yet. But like the da 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 kind of thing. I hadn't, I have no memory of this song. So when I first heard these verses, I was like, what time signature is he doing? He's actually in 4 4 the whole time, he's just accenting it. It sounds like mm-hmm. he's shifting, but. It's it's literally four beats to the measure the whole time, and it's just the way he emphasizes the beats makes it seem like off, which I love. That's a very sort of cinematic kind of thing. They're right there. Yeah. And another aspect of this album, I think it's worth kind of touching on with this song especially, but, you know, at this point, like you brought up the early 70s, and I think this is a real turning point for a lot of R&B artists where, um, you know, this is within a couple years, either way of, um, like, albums like What's Going On by Marvin Gaye, mm-hmm. Inner Visions by Stevie Wonder, where you have this new, like... I mean, there's a, so much great, you know, soul and Motown and R&B music from the 60s, but it was very much done in a, like, the old studio system of Hollywood, right? Like, yeah. they had their players, and you went in, and you did songs, and, like, now you're starting to see guys like Curtis and Marvin and Stevie sort of taking control of, like, saying, like, I'm, like, I'm sure they saw people like the Beatles and Bob Dylan and stuff were like, you know, we want to be that, but of R&B, right? Like, we're mm-hmm. going to create, we're going to produce, we're going to you know, push social issues and talk about, like, society as it is, not just, like, love songs and stuff. So, um, I, I think that's another exciting part about this era is you're sort of starting to see, like, R&B artists kind of looking at the freedom that maybe, you know, rock artists were really afforded and, and saying, like, we can kind of do that on our, our own terms as well. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And I wonder, as an extension to that, like, how much more creative freedom, like, Isaac Hayes and Curtis Mayfield had because they were working on films, and there's, like, an obvious, you know, aesthetic 
to these black exploitation films that they yeah. wanted to feel like kind of gritty and inner city and and funky and authentic where if they were trying to do a solo album you know the record label would probably be like yeah um yeah we got people who can handle that for you you know the arrangements and all that stuff it's like they were really carving out their own space being influenced by the picture obviously i mean some of the stuff is cues that are like written specifically for a chase scene in the movie or something like that um and i love that mm-hmm. it's it comes across now as just tunes it doesn't sound like a soundtrack quote unquote there's a couple of instrumental things but for the most part it just yeah. stands up as great music right yeah, let's let's go to one of those, Jason. Let's go to Junkie Chase, which is one of the instrumentals um, where, you know, it's it's being like, I mean, this is clearly like soundtrack music in the sense that you do it, Jason. Like, you know, something wah, wah, that was composed and for a certain sequence in a film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got to add wah-wah to all your, all your stuff moving forward. Even the most dramatic, like, fantasy games has to have, like, wah-wah guitar. Yeah, totally. You know, it's like the brass is treated a little differently. They got some like some plate reverb on the brass, but for the most part, the band sounds the same, and I love that. Like it's a, it's a cohesive album. There's some wah wah, baby. <laughs> oh, we even have a key change. Oh, yeah. It's too smooth. It goes right over your head. Yeah, yeah. So when I first heard this, uh, it also, reminded man. me of the beginning of uh, like, like The Incredibles. But like in a like a seventies black exploitation Incredibles, oh, yeah. the whole scene with Mister Incredible having to get to the wedding and the cat in the tree and all that kind of stuff. Like I think it's just brilliant. I love it. Either that or like chips. You know, I mean, this it, I, I couldn't yeah. tell you how many soundtracks <laughs> yeah. that this has influenced in, especially like when you get into like the late seventies, early eighties film and TV. Yeah, no, it it's definitely has that that kind of classic classic vibe to it. Um, I know that you had mentioned um, early. We talked a little bit about Freddy's Dead, and that's certainly a standout. This was one of the big hits off the uh, the album. It's a you know basically there's a character Fat Freddy in the movie that is a, a addicted to heroin and, and, and dies. Um, so this is another I think a great it's a great song and a, another example of how he was kind of talking about through the lens of the movie and the soundtrack kind of things that were going on. Uh, in the community at that time. And um, yeah. and also, it's just a great song. Yeah, look out, Lenny Kravitz. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I love Freddy's dead. And this Freddy's is like... Dead. Freddy's dead. It's like just. <laughs> yeah. Freddy's dead. Freddy's dead. That's what I say. 
this song is another I wanted to bring up too, just this album's influence in just like hip hop culture. I mean, tons of this album have been sampled. This riff, um, the beginning to like Ghetto Child Running Wild, like just and just the whole black exploitation, obviously, Ron O'Neill and everything. It, it, this has been, you know, I think this prefigures a lot of the things that hip hop was going to be about. And um, it's been, I mean, if you look at it, like the sample list off this album, it's just, it's incredible. I bet. Everybody's misused him, ripped him off and abused him. Another jacket plan, pushing dope with a man. A terrible blow, but that's how it goes. Yeah, that's a very Marvin Gaye sort of, uh, like, chord progression delivery. I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in, like, an inspirational way. We're all built up with progress. What's going on? That sort of thing. We can deal with rockets. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, I hear that. What does it mean? Ain't nothing said. Cause Fred is dead. Bop. Yeah, one last hit. Yeah. <laughs> is this where they do the key change? I think it is. Somewhere soon. Fill out the 16 bars. There we go. Oh, there we go. But don't worry. We're just going to go back down. We're just going to modulate for a second. (laughs) Back down. Yeah, back home. Yeah, I, I I think that must have been like something to picture. Something happened, and they modulated, and they came back down. Yeah, I I was gonna say I've never seen Superfly the movie, but I like I don't know. I feel like I have a pretty good picture of what it's like from this record. Yeah, definitely. That bass. Oh my gosh. I, I my yeah. note on I mean, this is two forty two bass tone. O M G. I mean, I'm almost positive that's... I'd be shocked if that wasn't a Fender P-Bass through an Ampeg. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Cab, like, like an classic. SVT tube yep. head. <laughs> Which is like almost every record in the 70s was that, basically. Yep. that Those two instruments. God, you, you got even more um, granular well, geeky look, than I did. I love it. Yeah, well, no, I mean, the, the SVT is a classic, you know? And, I mean, P-Bass is like... Yep. If you threw a, you know probably on like 75 percent of rock records that was like ever made basically <laughs> um but let's uh anything else you like we got a few i think really good ones uh anything that you wanted to move to jason um let's see we've covered a lot of my notes already i've got um a pusher man like the there's drums and percussion and bass i think at the beginning and they're kind of doing one tempo and then when the drummer starts playing like kind of the the kick drum and the snare drum like with the backbeat like when the the real beat comes in it was noticeable to me how how everything sped up, and I could almost see the session like where they're they're counting off at the beginning and they're sort of like doing it free time, and the drummer's sitting there playing his hi hat like man you're playing too slow and he's looking around like at the percussionist and the bass player and he comes in and he's like screw you guys I'm playing the right tempo and you you can feel it like kind of slip into the groove properly <laughs> right and you wouldn't get that nowadays because everyone's just cutting it to Pro Tools and everything's perfect and I love that that was the take they kept. Oh, man, the bass lines on this album are amazing. I know. It's just outrageous. 
I mean, he does more like with like four notes or something, like, you know. Just to come in real quick with a nice footnote. Matt, you're right. Uh, the bassist Joseph Lucky Scott, who performed on this record, played a Fender Jazz with flat-wound strings and a right-hand plucking technique. Sounds right. And there's, there's either like a, a Rhodes, maybe, or just another guitar line that doubles the bass an octave higher on the verse that really like reinforces that super cool line. Oh. And I like that. Yeah, it's funny when I was a kid, um, I used to watch a lot of like MTV raps and stuff. So I thought this song was, I thought Ice-T on his song, I'm, I'm, I'm Your Pusher, like I thought that was like him. And then oh, I finally right. years later heard this song, I'm like, oh. Ice-T didn't invent that, okay? Because <laughs> he basically just, like, used the, the chorus to this, you know, straight out in most of the beat. <laughs> nice. I was reading some, uh, just some stuff online about this album, and I guess there was a, not, I don't think there was tension, but I guess Curtis, um... Like, this is an example of a song that's sort of like, you know, talking about the street life in the first person of the sort of the, the dealer. And a lot of the black exploitation movies, like, they're sort of like these morality tales, but in a way, they always make the the bad guys kind of seem the coolest. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and, uh, yeah. So, and, and, and so, like, Curtis, I think a lot of the messages on this album was him, like, not rebelling against the... He wanted to reflect the movie, but I think he also wanted to, like have the extra layer of saying like this is like he had a more anti-drug kind of take on things and, and that's sort of reflected more in the album than it is really in the movie mm-hmm. and um and it's also one of those things where i guess this is the only like one of the only times uh in the history of both music and movies that a uh a uh, soundtrack album like outgrossed the film itself <laughs> right yeah And I knew it was successful, but I guess it did 12 million copies in the U.S. Wow. The band, just, just props to the band. I would have loved to have seen these sessions, like how they, how they did it. Um, you know, were they putting the song together in the studio? Uh, or did, did Curtis walk in with like charts and everyone played them down or was it like a, you know, a collaborative sort of a jam? <laughs> it, it feels like a band that's played together a long time, but it could just be amazing studio musicians. Yeah. I think some of these guys had played with him for a while, but I mean, to your point though, this was also kind of the era, like early seventies when like the peak of just like the studio killer musician guys that could just come in and yeah. like... You know what I mean? Look at a sheet of paper for like 10 minutes and be like, cool, let's do it. Let's run it. You know, and and basically like five minutes later, you probably had to take. Let's see. Um, one more before we leave I wanted to get was Eddie, You Should Know Better. I thought that was kind of, it's a more of a lesser known song in the album, but I really like this one. Cool. Um, Go. 
That's like such a classic, like, do bop down, like, setup. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. And those strings in the background. I know. I swear they use, like, big, fat tube mics and ribbon mics on all these instruments. Like, you can hear the rosin on the strings. They're so close in the recording. We planned and worked hard from the very start. Tried to make him better than all the rest. So when you referred to as dry earlier, you mean, like, dries and, like, everything's, like, there's, like, no reverb or, like, room sounds? Yeah, no room sound. Interesting. Yeah, I, who would I notice that? Somebody pointed out to me. It's kind of those things because now I think because of the the world of like recording that you know obviously you're familiar with, but like just with plugins, I think it's so it's almost irresistible to put like reverb on everything now, you know. Mm-hmm. And 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 somebody pointed that out to me actually about Neil Young, which he's like like listen to an early Neil Young record. Like those records are so dead. Like mm-hmm. there's no reverb on anything. Like the drums are like in a room with like carpet on the walls. Yeah, it was like, you know, I mean, half of it was a fad because they could, because they had those extra channels and um, they don't have to have four mics in a room with 10 musicians or something. But I think there's also an aesthetic that came out of that. That's, that's why I mentioned um, like the Eagles and Steely Dan. Those were bands that were formed from studio musicians that were all doing this stuff in the 70s. And they kind mm-hmm. of carved that into their aesthetic uh you can even fast forward to like daft punk or something it's you hear a daft punk tune and my mind says 70s instantly because it's got that like hi-fi dry upfront present smooth kind of sound um but they're doing it today right it's it's modern but they're still using those production techniques from the 70s which i think is super cool that's interesting yeah i never thought about them but yeah they they definitely kind of reference back to that era for sure um, well, this was like, these are both great albums, man. I had, I had so much fun. It was like doing the homework for this was a joy. I was just walking <laughs> my agree. dog and either listening to Rush or Cur- Curtis Mayfield. It was fun. And, uh, um, uh, Jason, do you have a, uh, time to stick around for a few, uh, listener questions? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Great. Uh, well, I should mention that, uh, listeners, if you're not already, you can go to patreon.com slash minmax. That's M-I-N-N with two N's, M-A-X. Every time that we record an episode, we solicit questions and a song. From our community, uh, even if we don't play your song or if we don't get to your question, we bank them and they do appear on Spotify in the Spotify community playlist uh, linked in the show notes. So uh, getting into our questions here, our first comes from Mike Lynch, who says, welcome to Crossfade, Jason. I'm not sure which one he's talking to there. I'm assuming both. it's me, but listen, we can share this crown. Uh, I'll take it. Yeah. Uh, welcome to the welcome to Crossfade. You're listed as the composer for Cardboard Bernini, a documentary about an artist creating a detailed cardboard fountain destined for destruction. Uh, Mike tends to do his research. Wow. Um, yeah. As an artist, have you have you ever found it hard to move on from a project, or are you happy to let the finished work out into the world? That's that's a good that's a good question. Um, well, it's never really finished, I think, is probably the definitive answer. And I imagine any sort of creative person would probably tell you. Uh, and that's actually what a lot of the Cardboard Bernini was about, was, you know, when is work finished? And it gets very um, metaphorical and things. But uh, I, I think 
filmmaker, TV, a, a painter, anyone would agree that they're, they're never really finished. They just kind of have to let it go and move on. And I found the only real frustrating thing about that is it kind of gets to the point where it's not sounding horrible to your kind of inner critic. And then all of a sudden it's time to move on. And, and you're starting from scratch again and everything sounds horrible again. And it's the same thing with games. We finally get to the point where the game's not breaking all the time and we can actually play through it a little bit. It's starting to look good. It's starting to sound good. And then it's time to move on. And now you're starting on a new, completely broken project. But that's, that's the nature of creation, I believe. So it is hard to move on. Um, and I'm never satisfied. I always wish I had more time. But I also have a bunch of other people tapping me on the shoulder uh, with expectant eyebrows waiting for more music. So um, the next journey is inevitable and always welcome. Wonderful. Uh, well, sort of leapfrogging for, to that, um, Jason Wojnar, who is uh, just yet another Jason. All the Jasons. wonders if there's more space for another on the show here. <laughs> yeah, ev- everyone in the U.S. and uh, Kiev, Ukraine, which is where Jason Wojnar is from. Cool. Um, he mentions, or sorry, his question is that uh, as a composer for video games, uh, generally other people's works, how do you separate your own musical tastes and ambitions from just getting the job done? Do you ever compose a piece of music that's not really your taste, but you know it's in the best interest of the piece, um, even if it's not, you know, your personal uh, favorite or not necessarily favorite. Sorry, I'm mischaracterizing that probably. But, uh, you know, Style. what's best for the yeah. piece versus yeah. what your own yeah. taste would dictate. It's, yeah, it's funny because um, I was probably 10 years into my marriage um and one of my wife's friends said something like, oh, she found out I was a composer. She said, oh, that's so wonderful. Your husband must have written you so many beautiful songs. And she basically kind of shrugs <laughs> him off and said, I-, I could never afford him or, you know, I could never get on his schedule. I've been I've been blessed <laughs> and cursed with working like, I mean, Fred Flintstone feet on the ground running from when I was in school to now. And. I've actually never had, uh, uh, well, a desire to do any sort of a passion project. Like if you're like, Jason, tell me, what is what does Jason's music sound like? If he didn't have any restrictions or anything, and I'd say, um, you know, you could give me a year and a gazillion dollars, and in a year, I wouldn't have written a single thing because I had no restrictions. I had no specifications. I had nothing to base the music on. Um, I think it's like I'm almost this empty shell. I don't mean that in a negative way. Like creatively speaking, I, I get filled up with whatever it is I'm working on. So if it's like a 70s thing, then you know I'm getting out the guitars and the drums and the, the tape recorder. Uh, if it's something for the future, like I was doing yesterday, then I'm using all of my analog synths from the 80s and drum machines and things. And I think that's what I actually thrive on is letting the project that I'm working on really drive me creatively. But it's also mm. uh, a little bit of an issue. Like my, my agent says um, that it can be a challenge to kind of pitch me for something because none of my games necessarily uh, sound the same. You go from like an action adventure fantasy to a scary game mm. to a, like some little kind of a kid's thing to something I might do on television or for a movie trailer there. Um, there's no thread except that it's, it's me actually trying to be as different as possible because that's what really kind of gets me going, Le- learning new things and figuring out new stuff. 
um, there was a there was a picture, there was a screen grab that I did that I was going to send to my family today, and I'm opening up Google Photos right now. Basically, he said, "As long as you're learning something new, you're not making a mistake." And I was like, "That's it. That that's me." Okay, that's a good one. That's me. <clears throat> so you take a little bit of you take solace in you know earning through the work through the project rather than like I got to have this thing sound like this. It's set in blank period. Therefore, it must sound like this. You're not that prescriptive about it. Definitely not. And as a matter of fact, a lot of times I run the opposite direction um, with any sort of prescribed <laughs> or uh, expected kind of a thing, right? Um, for, for Tomb Raider, for example, I'm not mm -hmm. a huge gamer. I don't play a lot of games. I never really played Tomb Raider. And uh, a bunch of people, especially my composer friends, were like, oh, are you just like listening to Tomb Raider all the time? Because there were 10 or 12 games that came out before I did it. And I mm -hmm. never listened to any of that stuff because the last thing that I wanted to do was come across as being um, derivative or, you know, interpretive of past projects. I wanted it to be fresh and, and unique and kind of explore those sonic possibilities on my own instead of having a roadmap put in front of me. Like, this is what it should sound like. Nice. Well, it sounds like he's expanded your palette a bit. Um, and that's that's the net positive, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, our next question comes from John Jensen, who says, oh, man, this is going to be interesting, but Curtis Mayfield is a cool pick, pick, excuse me, but John says, unfortunately, does not like Rush. <laughs> it's I'm Getty's sorry, voice, John, I, I promise ask. you. Uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my question, is there a band that in retrospect you should have been into when you were younger, but have now have only now realized how great they are? My answer is I liked Alice or excuse me, Alice in Chains. I liked when their songs were on the radio, but I never really bought the albums and wouldn't listen to them uh, in the time at the time. I wouldn't list, list them in his favorites, but now I feel like a fool for not doing so. Uh, anything that, you know, didn't catch your ear as a kid that's now um, that's now near the top. Um. Well, t I can do two quick answers for that. And they're going to be as far as removed from uh, Alice in Chains as we can get. Sure. But I was doing this real scary set of games, especially the first one called Dead Space. And the music was fraying my nerves as well as it should. Mm. And that's when I started listening to jazz. Um, I discovered like Chet Baker, Miles <laughs> Davis, um, especially instrumental jazz. Because of that, like, Mid-60s, you know, three tube mics in the room, the opposite of what we're talking about with Curtis Mayfield. Three tube mics in the room. You hear all this warm air around the players, and they're just doing single takes. It's uncompressed. It's unequued because they couldn't really do anything. Just that natural sort of vibe and flow really soothed my nerves. I'd listen to, like, you know, kind of blue for 30 minutes and have a glass of wine at the end of the day. Cause I was literally just like, my heart was racing. I was just a complete and total mess doing this really <laughs> scary music. Um, that was like 10 or 12 years ago, but more recently, uh, I'd been doing a lot of recording in Nashville. They've got an amazing studio there. And I discovered Alison Krauss and union station. And that's like, because I was in the studio where they recorded a lot of these albums and actually met a couple of them in the studio one day. And um, that music, it's like country, but not too country, where it gets twangy. And I just love the production, the the guitars and the vocals, like very upfront and present, like a 70s thing, but also with some some natural reverb on it. And um, the, uh, the, the instruments and the way it sounds, the harmonies, 
very similar to that jazz thing to me. I was actually just listening to Alison Krauss this afternoon as a kind of a breather. It's like just sort of slows my pulse down. You know, it's it's the opposite of the electric guitars and and Getty screaming really high, which really gets me excited. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that I like to kind of come down from, um, get the pulse back to a resting state. <laughs> <laughs> You don't value it till it's uh, <laughs> too late in those respects. Uh, Matt, is there anything you didn't listen to as a kid that you realized finally is like, wow, yeah. this actually rocks? I mean, no, it's, I think tons of things. It's just been me, you know, I guess my core is like stuff like Rush and, you know, classic rock and heavy metal. So, I mean, you know, there's tons of things like, you know, as a child, Joni Mitchell would have just have seemed so foreign to me, right? And so like soft or whatever. And, and like, she's one of my favorites. I think she's like a genius. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. I would also say, you know, jazz in general, but, Jazz, I mean, her composition, Joni is just like a, a master at guitar, at singing, at, at everything, um, lyrics. Um, jazz is kind of weird because, you know, like, I guess when I finally started hearing something like my 20s, I was playing a lot of kind of like post-punk and punk bands. So at that stage, you have this sort of weird thing where you hear like really weird stuff from like people that are in like punk bands before you hear like classics. So I heard like, you know, friends would play me like free jazz records, like Albert Eiler or like the really crazy Miles Davis, like, you know, post bitches brew, like dark Magus and like live evil stuff. So like, I heard like, you know, I heard bitches brew years before I heard kind of blue. Me too. And so, (laughs) cause it was sort of like, that stuff was kind of, that's just kind of scronky and like, you know, or a tribute to Jack Johnson or, you know, like, cause it was almost kind of scronky, like a lot of punk rock stuff and noise kind of rock. And so now I have, I've kind of, it's like gone in reverse almost. And I've kind of like, ended up, you know, listening to like, oh, wow, like Louis Armstrong's really good. You should check him out. You know, after like, <laughs> I'd like heard like Sonny Sharrock or people like that. So um, <laughs> that was kind of an interesting one just to sort of, you know, just grow this like reverse appreciation of like jazz in reverse, I guess. But um, and I jazz still like that reverse. other stuff. But Sounds um, like a great jazz album. Actually. Yeah, jazz in reverse. I'll, I'll remember <laughs> that. Um, uh, LazyCon Gaming, I'll let you take this one first, Matt, but LazyCon Gaming says uh, that Pusher Man has been one of my all-time favorite feeling like a real cool dude song, just <laughs> strutting when that one hits the headphones. Uh, what are your favorite songs that make you feel like the coolest dude on the block when they come on? I you I know that you listen to music while walking your dog and, and <laughs> yeah, uh, washing dishes and, and stuff. I'm not, I'm not the coolest guy on the block when I'm walking my little floofy dog, but no, you've, in, in you've, your dog is. Yeah, yeah. Os- Oscar definitely is. Um you know, I thought about that for a while. And this is just a band in general, I think, has this vibe. But uh, probably the one most I would say by them, and I'm a huge fan, is uh, Beer Drinkers and Hellraisers by ZZ Top. Um, yeah, okay. But in general, they have that sort of, you know, in the same way Curtis has, they have that sort of vibe for a lot of their songs. I could have gone with, like, you know, LaGrange or, you know, I'm Bad, I'm Nationwide. Or, like, you know, they have a lot of swagger for a rock band, I would say, ZZ Top, the early stuff. So I'll go with that. Uh, and Jason, do you have any of those uh, songs that just, like, make you feel real fucking cool like the coolest dude on the block when they come on well i I have some that make me um seem like not cool at all like i'm a you know 40 something year old dad who's trying to feel cool does that count so am i (laughs) i i really like um i like the foo fighters uh it's like dad rock i guess is kind of what people are pinning it as but do you guys listen to foo fighters at all i haven't yet i know a lot of folks who have though no, I, I definitely have. I, I want to bring up something interesting about the Foo Fighters, too, that I feel like is happening. I mean, I like the second album. I, I love the second album. I was big on that. I have one called, is it One by One? That's another. I have some CDs. Anyway, but I feel like bands get this thing where it's like, 
Dave Grohl got to be this kind of pop culture figure, and everyone's like, "Oh, Dave yeah. Grohl's so awesome!" And now it's kind of tipped over where it's like, the Foo Fighters suck. And I feel like I feel like they might have been overrated, and now in a weird way, it might have come back around where they might be like underrated, if that makes sense. Because I feel like there's mm-hmm. a cycle with with groups like that when they get. I feel like U two kind of went through that cycle too, where it's like people they might have been overrated at a point. Now they like might be underrated in, in a certain sense. So yeah. it's kind of just interesting. There's a kind of like a, always a backlash when somebody kind of gets to that level of media. Yeah, I completely agree. As a matter of fact, I was just reading about the Phil Collins effect, which everyone sort of talks about tra- career trajectories, how you just reach a point, if you get real popular, there's a point where it's just oversaturation. And no matter how good you are, if you reach that level of success and notoriety and recognition, people are going to start getting tired of it. And then you're in decline. And then fast forward 10 years, and now you're cool again, even though you haven't done anything different. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, Phil Collins. Phil Collins has made the full circle to like almost being like where like people in their 20s like think he's really cool again. I know. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, you look at the No Jacket Required album cover, and it's it's really hard for millennials to say no to that, you know? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Actually, actually, if if we want to talk about people that are probably the closest to the, to the, um, Equal of Neil Peart as a drummer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Phil Collins would be right up there. Like, I mean, his playing on Gen- those old Genesis records, like, my God. That was that was the hard choice for me, Matt, was uh, do I pick a Genesis album or do I pick a Rush album? Because those are the two bands, that and Led Zeppelin. So those are the three bands that I played drums to, all in all through middle school, high school, and, and college, um, especially early Genesis. Not Peter Gabriel early, but like 70s Genesis. When they did all that cool instrumental stuff, that's mm-hmm. a whole oh, yeah. other show. But yeah, I love Phil's playing. It's it's so tasty. And then he's a drummer and he's a songwriter. You know, that's one of the things I love about uh, Dave Grohl. He's a drummer and he's a songwriter. Um, and he just kind of, you know, he writes things the way I would write them, except a lot better, like a lot cooler, because he uses these interesting harmonies and <laughs> cool things that, you know, I might do now, but it's only because... I've heard him do it in some of the albums. You know, it's not like just one, four, five chords or like some kind of just standard Mixolydian, like Led Zeppelin, you know, flat seven sort of thing. I love Led Zeppelin. Don't don't get me wrong. Uh, but the Foo Fighters, all those guitars, man, and they're all doing different things. Like that's a great example of of sounding big and having lots of instruments playing at the same time. But everything's carved out like in its own space. Three guitars in a band. Are you kidding me? But it sounds great. I love it. Tell that to Leonard Skinner. They knew. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or two drum sets. <laughs> they had, Tell they that had to it down. like Genesis. And um, what was the other band that had two drum or, sets? Uh, Grateful, Grateful Dead. Grateful Dead, yeah, Grateful Dead yeah. have two drummers. Yeah. Look at that. We're right in sync, man. Yep. Sometimes it sounds like half a drummer, but no. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's this this two, Kreutzmann and uh, and uh, what's the dude? Uh, Mickey Mickey Hart. Yeah. Yep. There you go. They like a lot of symbol tapping. <laughs> All right, Jason. All right. Should we get to the community pick? Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm going to let us uh, outro over. <laughs> get this, Matt. It's a Slipknot song. Uh, you, we have Slipknot's nice. Heretic Anthem. Um, I you said know, this to you guys a little earlier today. Did you guys get a chance to listen to it, or do you have uh, history with the Heretic Anthem or Slipknot in general? Well, I listened to it, and the only thing that I thought, Jason, was like, this song is so much better than the movie Akira. Oh my God, Matt! Ah! <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm wearing. An I'm sorry. I'm, I'm pulling right back now. Like, arguments. One time, Jason and I were at work together, and I put out a Twitter because me and this other guy we were arguing about whether 
anime was better than Slipknot, and I put out a Twitter poll: anime versus Slipknot. So I'm sorry, I'm just calling back. I'm, I'm calling yeah, back. Anime like, won. Office, like, so. Anime. <laughs> you should have known. But you should have known your audience, Matt. You're probably by a bunch of people who I love know, video I know, games. I know. Definitely, yeah. definitely, anime was going to win that uh, one. But uh, anyway, power to Slipknot, Iowa, state of Iowa. Yeah. Uh, but Jason, is there any uh, any love for Slipknot in your heart or hate? I guess this is the place to air it out. I think it's probably ambivalence, just because. Um, I've, that's the, one of the few genres that I've never really dug into deep besides the surface level, like Metallica kind of thing. But um, you say Slipknot, and I'm just going to say if I don't hear like triple bass drum, like machine gun in my ears and someone going <laughs> like screaming with like, like incredibly insane face melting <laughs> guitars, I'm going to be really disappointed. Well, they're, they're a big drum band. They got a lot of drums. Awesome. Who's the, who's the drummer for Slipknot? Oh, they have like a, they're like numbers one through nine. They don't have names, I think. Oh. And like a bunch of them play like garbage cans and, oh, cool. and sheet metal and stuff. It's like, it's nice. all, you'll have, it's, it's easier for you to watch a YouTube video of Slipknot than okay. for me to try to sit here and explain Because I'm picturing it. like um, Blue but, Man group playing uh, heavy slip- metal and I'm sure that's not the vibe. <laughs> um, you know, you know, Jason, um, that would be <clears throat> probably the worst description in some ways. Um. <laughs> We should uh, uh, we should think yeah. Oh god, we um, cannot loop another Jason but, into this war if we've lost but, uh, too many lives. Um to, I should, to bring I should it think, back uh, Yeah, oh, I yeah, should think on. Mike Lynch one last time for uh, suggesting that song. He also gave us the question about um artists that you found it or sorry, uh pieces that you found it hard to move on from, um versus uh you know things you were let it ready to let out into the world. So right, thank you nice. again, Mike, for that suggestion. Thanks, uh we're Mike. gonna play it on our outro. And uh yeah, absolutely. And and Jason, uh, just to, to close things off more seriously, uh, we really appreciate your time. It's been such a fun discussion, and we thank you for uh, being on the show and hanging out and talking about Rush and Curtis. Uh, it's just it was a, it was a blast to do this. So thanks very much. Thanks so much for having me. You guys are hysterical and so much fun to chat with. It's been a pleasure. Well, down the road we'll have to have you back. Absolutely. All right. Take care, Jason, and thanks to everyone. Please support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash minmax, and uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks.
slightest I'm teaching you prices The lesson ain't clamoring All the money in the world can't buy me Go ahead, let me Tell me again how you're tortured I wanna know how you fought your own It's so well You're full of shit You wanna dream but this ain't it Like you're 555 on 666 If you're 555 on 